Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. We begin today with a hot topic in local news of late, the future of events on ice at the Peoria Civic Center, particularly ice hockey and the Peoria Rivermen. While traditional contract negotiations are ongoing as they usually do, there are hang-ups this time about whether city taxpayers should continue to foot the bill for the playing ice. And it's creating uncertainty about the team's future at the Civic Center. Peoria City Councilman Dennis Sear gave his perspective on WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show last week. A nice hockey move because we're going into hockey. Yesterday at this time we talked about uh, the Peoria Riverman. We just knocked it around the two of us. Uh, because in the news last couple of weeks of the news cycle, there's conversations about uh, the Civic Center, uh, the Riverman, the future, all those kind of things. I do have to, before we introduce our guests, I, I always want to make sure I'm clear about this because I don't want anybody uh, getting the wrong idea. Full disclosure, full disclosure, uh, my wife, Yvonne, is the chairwoman of the Peoria Civic Center Authority, which is involved in this story. I just want to make clear that I'm not trying to hide that fact. Fifth uh, D- District Councilman Dennis Sears here. Dennis, it's been a long time since you've been in our studio. It's good to see you. I know. I mean, I'm putting my glasses on so I can read my notes. And the last time I was here, I didn't wear any glasses. So it must have been a long time ago. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Uh, the story is very complicated. And I want to start this part. Uh, the the Civic Center, just in and of itself, separate from the Riverman, is an interesting entity because it's 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 the, it's part city. Uh, there's an, a management company, and then there's the authority board. There's there's many play, people involved in the running of the Civic Center. And has it always been? It was it set up that way from the get go forty years ago? Yes, it has. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, it really starts started many years ago in Springfield, actually, when they created the Pure Civic Center Authority. So they are a, a, a their own body. So they they're, these people are uh, placed there or are nominated by the mayor, most of them. And then I think, I believe, they picked their own chairperson after that. But uh, So it really started in Springfield many, many years ago. So that uh, you know they can be covered, I guess, by the by the uh, by the state government. Is it? And th- then they then they report really to the the civic to the uh, uh, city hall because the only thing they're not allowed to do is is issue their own bonds. So because of that, that's how the mayor's office and the council get involved with the oh, Peoria Civic Center Authority. So that we have to support them. Obviously, the Civic Center is a jewel here for the city of Peoria. No doubt. Uh, as we want to try to, to have a vibrant downtown, Civic Center is probably the most important building downtown. So it's a very important that we do a good job in, in trying to be team players and, and do whatever we can to, to make sure the Civic Center is successful. Is it designed to make money? Because over the years, that's always been one of the issues, like, ugh. Civic Center's in the red again, and I, and I don't know lately any numbers. I don't, but I know that it seems it seems better. It seems like since we got past COVID, uh, we're we're pouring in uh, an awful lot of people. I think I heard the number sixty five thousand people in the month of November went through those doors, uh, with all kinds of events happening and meetings and such. Uh, but I don't know. Is it is it some some entities are designed to not turn a profit? Is that one of them? Well, that's a great question. I think it depends on who you ask, really. Okay. I mean, I've been around you know, since 8045 as a player, right. and then as a manager, and then as a business person, and now as a councilman. 
Uh, you know, many years ago, I don't remember the date now, but many years ago, we started, when I say we, the city of Peoria, started the HRA tax, hotel, restaurant, amusement tax. And that, was, that tax was designed to help uh, uh, the Civic Center and with their losses at the time and also to help them with, with capital improvement and, and think that uh, you know, the, the, the things that they didn't have the money to do, basically. Right. And over the years, you know, I mean, the Civic Center got bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. And right now, I mean, it's it's a pretty big building, and I'm not sure I'm not sure if we overbuild it or not. But it's very hard to turn a profit on that such a big building. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of upkeep, even even just heating, air conditioning, even uh, the roof, uh, all that, the that, things that go into a building. Right? That is correct. Right. I mean, right now they're probably short, guessing around forty million dollars right now just for capital investment improvement, yeah. and they have twenty five. No, the, the 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 state has committed. Through Mr. K- uh, Kaler, I believe about twenty-five million dollars for improvement, but they're still short. In yeah. my opinion, probably fifteen million dollars. Okay, so that leads then perfectly into this conversation that's going on. And, and I don't—I'll admit to you, even though uh, the chairperson uh, is in my house, I don't understand all this stuff. So, I, full disclosure on that: uh, uh, the the Riverman conversation a couple of weeks ago got in the news cycle somehow. Where uh, the, the, and now there's petitions of keep the Riverman at the Civic Center. It's a 40-year tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. There's no doubt about that. But does it come down to uh, economic things? You're just talking about uh, uh, 40 million dollars in capital improvements. One of the issues that's at play is at some point uh, we need a new ice plant. I guess that's what they call it, the thing that makes ice, um, and that's uh, an expensive proposition. So is are we talking about a conversation between uh, the city, the Civic Center Authority, and, and ASM and the Rivermen as to who's going to buy that? Is that what we're really getting, this is all getting down to? Well, I mean, it's, again, it's a great question. Depending on your first question as to what are the priorities are. Sure. You know, I mean, Rick Edgar, who's the manager um, for the Civic Center, AS, uh, ASM, right? Right, ASM. Um, you know, his marching orders are to make try to make the Civic Center profitable. Right. It's all about dollar and cents. So he's in a very difficult situation because his job, his marching orders, is you got to make try to make the Civic Center profitable. Now you got the Civic Center. I mean, not the Civic Center, the Riverman. Okay, that uh, have been there for forty-one years right. now. The Riverman, the and oldest, you know, the oldest uh, uh, tenant, the oldest yeah. tenant. Well, yeah. they, had, they had no. I mean, we're, we're just uh, Bradley and uh, I think the theater has been there. Okay, all right, okay, but all right. so so yeah. there's three of them. I think they've been yeah. there for forty-one years right now. So what's difficult, and, and the Riverman has a, the, probably the best record of all minor league hockey in the United States. They've won more games than any other minor league hockey team. So they've done a fantastic Bart Rogers, his staff, have done a fantastic job. You have uh, the best coach in minor league hockey and, and Coach John Gitterdell, right. exceptional coach. It made a great job. They won last year. No, they won another championship. Well, okay. th- let me let me ask you about that then. Why why are you out about the dollar and cents part? Well, because it's it's no, the, the 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 floor. Okay, it's going to cost two point five million dollars. Okay, the ice. You're talking the about ice. Yeah, 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 the ice plant is two point yeah. five million dollar project, which the Civic Center don't have right now. They don't right. just don't have the money right now. But a lot of people, there's a lot of moving parts, et cetera. A lot of people are working very hard, and I'm one of them right now to talk to a lot of people, try to find the money so we can do that. But but it ultimately, but this is a short-term solution. I have to be very clear. Now, the Civic Center is too big. 
for a lot of teams. Okay, I think the Civic Center right now is too big for Bradley, and it's too big for for the Riverman. So what? So the physical term, space, the physical yeah. space yeah. is yeah. just too big. Okay? Yeah. So right, another thing we're trying to do, or I'm trying to do, is find some investors and find some money somewhere where, and we're talking with you no know, a lot of people, including the park district, where we could build maybe a four thousand seats arena where the Riverman could stay in Peoria and, and play there. So we're working on a lot of things. But short term, say building a new rink, okay, it's a three-, four-year project. Right. What, what, what can we do, we do for the next three or four years? Yeah. Well, we've got to fix the floor eventually. Right. And so we need to have the, find the right people and, and a will to do that so that we can buy time for the Riverman. So if we want to keep them here, if we believe that it, it's a, they're an asset to the city of Peoria, we need to b- find some money and buy them time and, and, and build another okay. building somewhere. The number of new COVID-19 cases in Illinois is once again higher than the week before. The Illinois Department of Public Health says more than 23,000 new cases were added to the rolls in the last week, several thousand higher than the week prior. What's more, the number of Illinois counties with elevated levels of COVID transmission has also gone up from 74 to 86. Peoria and Tazewell counties are still at high levels of transmission, and Woodford County is at medium right now. The state, again, urging residents to get the most recent bivalent COVID-19 vaccine booster. They say the CDC just also expanded the authorization to include children aged six months to five years for those booster shots. Last week, we got an update on Central Illinois illness and impact from Dr. Doug Casper with the University of Illinois College of Medicine here in Peoria. And it wasn't just about COVID-19, but the triple-demic threat, including RSV and influenza as well. And we heard it on WMBD's The Greg and Dan Show. Day in the show, about a month ago, I literally had the thoughts to myself, um, I'm, I'm running out of stuff to ask you. And then everything like whipped back around, and now we're, we're seeing hospitalizations up, and RSV and the flu, as we've been talking about the last two or three weeks. Uh, COVID numbers are up. I read a stat today. I'd like your reaction to it. Less than half of people who live in nursing home facilities have had their up-to-date vaccines for COVID. Good morning, first of all. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I keep waiting for this all to taper off, too. <laughs> and so, um, and it just right now, we seem to be in the thick of it. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, very high cases of influenza. We have rising cases, uh, a small level compared to, you know, peaks of COVID that we have. And uh, it's a mixture of two things. Uh, it's a mixture of uh, seasonal activities and meetups and travel and holidays and events and it's a mixture of very low vaccine uptake, which includes uh, influenza vaccine and COVID booster. And so I don't think that it's really surprising. Um, you know, the setup is in place here where when you look at, you know, like the stat you gave about nursing homes or when you look at statistics about flu vaccine uptake, um, that this is the prediction is, is that you know, we'll have periods of high activity we're seeing with RSV that while the activity remains high, it's definitely declined from its peak. So these will follow suit. And 
you know, in a period of time, the numbers will come down. But at the moment, the combination right now is just high across the board activity. Yeah, and I, I've noticed, I was uh, in a store yesterday for a minute, and I noticed a very large number of people wearing masks again. You know, we all, and, and, and it, that's interesting to me because, while there is mask resistance among some, and, and even in the throes of the pandemic, uh, those folks wore them begrudgingly sometimes. Uh, now, we, there is a, a, a part of the population, looks like a pretty good part of the population, that is hip to the thing. I was like, all right, you know what? I don't want to get it again, or I don't want to get the flu, and I don't want to give it to my friends, so I'll, I'll pop that mask on for a minute. That's all anecdotal, of course. But uh, do you think we're not ever going back to a mandate on the masks, are we? Yeah, I mean, you've seen some chatter, especially out of uh, major metropolitan areas around uh, public health venues that, you know, whether it's prisons or or convalescent homes or something where there could be some enforcement. But I do agree with you. It's it's empowering that um, we seem to have moved past the part where uh, it has to move in unison, you know, and then that leads to discussions about, uh, you know, all everything that goes around masks. It's definitely more in the individual realm and with individuals that feel very strong about one way or another being able to make their own decision is a change, and I think that's probably a sustained change, meaning that we'll see this seasonally where we yeah. know that as cases rise, and if you have family members of yourself are at risk, that, that there is a way to protect yourself um, on top of the many other measures. Well, and I'll tell you, this is a very personal one, and it involves this show and you and Mark and Danny. Uh, so Danny gets sick. Danny's dealing with uh, cancer. Danny's his immune system has way compromised over the last six weeks. And his, his advice from his doctors is, hey, uh, stay low, stay away, right? And so when I go visit him, I wear a mask uh, because I know his situation. He knows his situation. We're all being smart about it. I think each family and group of people, friends, uh, uh, I, we're smart enough to do that. And, and this is what you just said. I'm just reiterating that own personal story there. Um, vaccines. What's the hesitancy on keeping up to date, you think? Especially with seniors. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's probably a combination of fatigue about the message. Um, it's a combination of maybe some confusion about things that have been updated. And, and, you know, it was easier to follow in the beginning when there was, you know, you get one and then you wait you know, six weeks, eight weeks, and you go get another. I think that also it just gets lost in the grind of, the world you know there are yep. other things that are important <laughs> there's economy there's school and there's holiday and so um it's hard to keep any topic you know on the forefront and so we it's nice that there are resources you know there's many online calculators and algorithms but i i feel like um you know saying it repetitively doesn't add more emphasis and so uh, we want to keep people up to date that there is benefit. You know, we continue to show benefit in demographics, especially demographics 50 and older, especially in people with chronic medical conditions that obtaining a, a new bivalent booster has protective benefit. But the message has been lost in so many different avenues that it, it's hard to kind of reiterate it over and over. The um where are we currently with uh, people getting the flu vaccination? I don't know where we are. I know that we're falling behind on the COVID stuff, but are we doing all right in that regard? Uh, it remains low uptake. You know, there are certain 
especially in hospital jobs or nursing home jobs where for years flu vaccine has been mandated as a part of employment, there's much higher uptake. And so those are areas you know, you'd like to feel protected. But, um, you know, flu vaccines traditionally have about a 50 percent uh, effectiveness rate. And so I think that, um, you know, we, we got used to touting 90 percent effectiveness with early COVID vaccines. And maybe some people then feel that flu vaccine isn't as beneficial. But uh, flu is, so flu, the, the positives when discussing it for this year, the vaccine does match up against the strains that are circulating. And even if you become ill with the flu, those that are vaccinated have a less significant illness. And so right now would be a wonderful time to get vaccinated against influenza because we're, we're in the thick of it. And it, so this would be the biggest bang for your buck moment. Is there, is there a uh, common reaction to the flu vaccine? Because I do think that sometimes people hesitate because they don't, like right now, uh, I got the holiday party coming up or I got a birthday uh, with somebody and I don't want to like feel bad for a couple of days. Is there a common or is that just as individual as we are individuals? Yeah, flu vaccines are generally very well tolerated. They are inactivated, so they're dead virus, uh, and it's a part it's a part of the virus. So it's it doesn't um, have the kind of the uh, what we discussed with mRNA vaccines, where you do get this period maybe 24 hours after the vaccine of feeling ill from immune activity. We don't see that with influenza vaccine. And historically, where the, the, the kind of misidentification has come from is that flu vaccine doesn't cover all strains of flu. And so you certainly can still get flu if there's different circulating strains. But at this moment, uh, the vaccine matches up pretty well with what's what's going through our community. It was a victory lap for workers' rights advocates in Illinois last week to celebrate final passage of the Workers' Rights Amendment to the Illinois Constitution. It guarantees all workers in the state have the right to form a union if they wish. Governor J.B. Pritzker was joined by top AFL-CIO and other labor representatives to mark the occasion at an event in Chicago. Hello, everyone. My name is Bob Ryder. I'm president of the Chicago Federation of Labor. And, and I'd like to welcome you to the most pro-worker city and the, pro, and the most pro-worker county and the most pro-worker state in the whole United States of America. You know, a few years ago, we were approached by a few of our very good friends here in the labor movement about the idea of passing an amendment to the state constitution to protect the rights of working people here in Illinois. This amendment would fight back against the anti-union politicians and special interests who have been attacking workers all across the country. And it would cement Chicago and Illinois as the front of the pack when it comes to protecting the basic freedoms of working people. Now, I hear a lot of I hear a lot of these kinds of pitches and normally I tell you I want to know everything about a piece of legislation before I commit to anything. In a job like this, you have to do your homework on 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 everything. But when I heard about what we could do with the workers rights amendment, I only had one question. When do we get started? It was immediately clear to me how important this amendment would be to first responders, to our tradespeople, to public sector employees, 
to manufacturing and service workers, and to every single person who earns a paycheck in Illinois. And it was clear that we had to take the initiative so we could be proactive to protect the things we care about in this state, not just sit back and hope that everything's going to be okay. There are so many labor organizations that are playing defense all across the country. And yeah, we've swatted down a few bad proposals over the years, especially from a former governor whose name I'm not going to say. You can go find him in Florida. Yeah. But uh, we don't just play defense here in Chicago, and we don't play defense here in the state of Illinois. And that's what the Workers' Rights Amendment is going to do for Illinois workers. It proactively protects the freedom to collectively bargain for all employees, forever ending any kind of extremist effort to undercut the labor movement. It will protect higher wages for workers at a time when working-class families could use a few more dollars in their pockets. The research shows workers who have their collective bargaining rights protected make about 11000 more on average each year compared to anti-worker states. That's, that's 11000 yeah. That's 11000 more for gas and groceries, clothes and books. That's $11,000 that goes back into the local economy, not some corporation's bottom line. The Workers' Rights Amendment will also protect workers who speak out about safety issues on the job. We need safer streets, safer manufacturing, and safer workplaces. And the Workers' Rights Amendment protects the people who go to work every day to protect our communities, especially our first responders. Today, today is truly a great day for the working people of Illinois. I want to thank Governor Pritzker all of our legislative leaders that we have here today, especially uh, Speaker of the Illinois House, Chris Welch, and Senate President Don Harmon, for joining us in this fight. It's not easy to pass amendments in Illinois, no matter what the issue is. But because we came together, and believe me, brothers and sisters, we came together like we never have before. We came together and put working families ahead of politics, and we got this thing done. I expect to see smiles on every single person in this room because it took all of us in labor and government and advocacy working collectively to make this happen. And, man, I feel proud today. And I tell you what, there's, I talked about how we sat down and heard the proposals, and I would be remiss if I didn't thank all the people from the labor movement are here, the leaders who put a lot of resources into it, I see a lot of them here. I'm going to single one person out, and I know that this is usually not a good idea, and especially considering who, who, who it is and who he is in relation to me. But I'm, I'm just going to do it because the, the person who helped lead us down this path, the person who put the most amount of skin on the table was my friend and mentor, Jim Sweeney. And... And brothers and sisters, this is not just about Illinois. This is about our country. And this is where it starts, because it always starts in Chicago, and we lift everyone up. So before I hand it off to my good friend, Tim Dre, I just want to thank everyone in this room, from the activists to the leaders to the people who invested big time in this, folks like the IBEW and the laborers and everyone else. 
Thank you all. And with that, it's my great honor and privilege to introduce one of the best friends I've had in the labor movement in my career, representing uh, the airline pilots and the zookeepers. And it's the president of the Illinois AFL-CIO, one hell of a guy, Tim Dre. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Um, I want to start out. Uh, a lot of people in this room know that uh, Ruben Soderstrom had uh, 40 years of the state federation president. And so started in 30, ended in like 1971. So he went through the, the Great Depression, the World War II, uh, the civil rights era of the 50s, the, the unrest of the 60s, and into the early 70s. His grandson called me this morning. He said, Reuben would be very proud of the movement in Illinois. That meant a lot. That meant a lot. So um, before I really get started, I know, Bob, if you hadn't said something about Jim Sweeney for having this idea, I would have. So thank you, Jim. But you know, like any good ideas, it takes people to implement them. And I can't say enough about Mark Poulos and Sam Samantha McLean and her team for guiding this thing through. Thank you very much. It's a great job. So it's, it, you know, we're, this is a great place to be, right? IBW 134, City of Chicago, with the best trade unionist in the world. And I'd like to begin by saying everybody, to everyone from our executive board to the rank and file members, it is truly, truly an honor to work with each, one, each and every one of you every day. Again, today is not just a day for our movement. It's a day for the future, looking forward for our movement. Today we're here to celebrate the passage of the work that you did to pass the Workers' Rights Amendment, an historic update to the Illinois Constitution that will enshrine workers' rights for a generation our kids, your, uh, their grandkids, their grandkids, and to keep future anti-labor worker politicians from taking those rights away from us. Think about that. You have cemented the, cemented the future for your children, grandchildren, and their children. So it's a special day. Thank you. Uh, uh, this part was written for me, so I bet you know, you've all heard it. Um, Special day for families like mine. Growing up, I watched my dad go to a coal mine every day where workers risk their lives, right, to, to feed this industrial machine of Chicago, to, to, to light it and, to, and power the factories and everything. And I knew that each day the men and women he worked with fought hard to look out for him. They, they took care of each other's backs and uh, to get home safely because the one thing that we all want to do in this room, if somebody starts a shift, we want them to finish the shift, right? So because of the people in this room, because of this movement, because of this state, because of the culture that we have created, we were successful on November 8th, 2022. Perhaps little known to many in the area, but working hard behind the scenes to bring more of Peoria's youth into a place of peace, open-mindedness, and stability from traumatic upbringings so they can pursue their dreams through a better education. 
We learn much more about Peoria's Rise Academy on WMBD's The Greg and Dan Show this week. Greg and Dan Show, WMBD, 840 is the time. Danny, as you know, has been having some uh, medical challenges, so he's not here today. He'll be back shortly, we hope. We'll keep him in our thoughts and prayers. Over there is our buddy Mark Algini. And the Rise Academy is something that has uh, begun at the Peoria Public School, District 150. I want to talk first. We have uh, several guests in here. Uh, the Executive Director of Rise uh, and Director of Special Education is Ann Bond. Good morning, Ann. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How what is you? Rise? Talk to me. So um, Rise Academy is a program that we started about four months ago in Peoria Public Schools, and it's for students who are general education students in our K-4 setting okay. who are not finding success in their homeschools, um, whether that be behaviorally or social-emotionally. And so do they, are they taking, is, is there another facility then? The academy is a physical space? It is a space within a school within Peoria Public okay. Schools, yes. So, but, but if my child is in Rise Academy, they're going to that place with other Correct. members of Rise Academy. Yes. And it's K through 4. Yes. What was the, the impetus to do this? What was, what was the start? So um, this has actually been kind of uh, in the works or needed um, for many, many years within our district. We have a lot of alternative um, programs, resources within our school district, particularly for middle and high school students. Right, right. Um, but we have definitely seen the need over the years to provide um, another opportunity for our K-4 kids. Is this mental health uh, based? Is is that is that where we're going with it? I mean, is yes, that the need that these children are displaying? Uh, that is a component displaying? for sure. Okay. Uh, in the studio, also also from Rise Academy, Bridget Karstensen, program director. Uh, tell me who you see, and uh, not names, of course, but what what are we dealing with? K through four is a very fragile, uh, interesting time. Sometimes kids mature a little bit sooner than others, and so on and so forth. What do you see? It is so. We have some really incredible kids that have joined us over at Rise. The kids that we are currently serving are coming from their home school. Like Dr. Bond said, they're having some challenges being successful in that school setting. They get referred to us from their home school, and then we're supporting them with their behavior and social-emotional needs as well as academic. Is, is, is it, um, I don't want to try to pinpoint any one thing. I'm just trying sure. to understand what children are dealing with. Yeah. Is it primarily behavioral? So what we see is that most of our students are coming from some trauma-based experiences, which are truly impacting their ability to function within the school setting. So although we see behaviors, there's students that have conflicts um, you know, with other students in school, on the bus, things like that. Um, what we're really seeing is that that is a result of the trauma that they've experienced um, either outside the school setting and sometimes even within school with, with peers that they have. Andrew Brown is also a part of Rise Academy. Andrew is a program facilitator. Um, what do you do to help? What do you What do you do, Andrew, or your staff, and and the, all of the folks that are involved? So thanks, Greg. Um, we have uh, really gone through a lot of specific training and focused on a, a lot of the latest research based methods to kind of implement strategies to uh, address some of the behavioral concerns as well as. Um, Focusing on that uh, trauma-informed care uh, best practice. That uh, uh, any of you can answer this or react to my statement. It hurts my heart so much to think about trauma in little kids. These are little yeah. kids. Uh, I am lucky. Knock on uh, wood, and, and God bless everything that's ever happened. I've never had to deal with that. My children, myself, 
uh, it's hard to put myself in that place. Are we talking trauma like witnessing violence or domestic abuse in the family or things like that? Is that what we're talking about, Ann? Uh, yes, for sure. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things that kind of keeps us going and the staff going at RISE is just really starting to fully understand what our children and their families are enduring on a regular basis. Uh, it's truly, um, you know, it's really heart-wrenching, actually. How are they recommended? Is the teacher, uh, you can answer this, uh, uh, Bridget, uh, the teacher uh, say, uh, you know, talk to uh, Julie over here. This young lady's having some trouble. Sure. And then is it in con- in conjunction with the parents? Do the, the parents have to agree? Yep. So okay. we have a real rigorous uh, referral process. And so what that looks like is that these students um, are exhausting all of their homeschool options. That means that okay. they are working with their school social worker. It means that they are working um, on a system that allows for regular check-ins, communication home, families are involved in this process and so it's never just oh there was an incident and now we're accepting a student okay. it's really a process that the homeschool is exhausting their resources first and then that referral is made to us parents are always involved and we certainly get parent consent before joining Andrew why why that age uh, is it just that we're trying to I, I know our you guys all probably are familiar with Carl Cannon and his program mm-hmm. and he started something called uh, don't start where he realized he needed to go younger because he was at a high school level so he went younger to try to capture guys who were 10 11 and 12 doing some things uh, this seems like maybe a, a same mindset of the earlier we can rectify some emotional damage and some trauma situations, uh, the better. I'm assuming that's the reason, right? That's absolutely the reason. And, uh, you know, I think as we've seen uh, kind of an increase in community violence and uh, the impact that it's having, it, you know, we've, we've got, as Dr. Bond said, we've got a, a few programs in place to address the needs of middle school and high school students. But this is something that's been, um, this, this group has been underserved in this area for uh, many years. And uh, I think uh, the earlier we can get interventions in place, uh, the better chance of success we have long term. Uh, Just quickly, like, do we follow? I mean, I know the program's pretty very young in in District 150. Are we going to, is there a plan to follow the students after four, like after fourth grade, like to kind of have a post-rise academy? So um, what we're planning is for students to return to their home school as they're demonstrating skills that really are necessary to be successful. So we have some plans in place as to what that will look like for students um, because we recognize that they need a smooth transition and we want to continue to provide support as they transition back. Um, I think one of the saddest things for us would be to have students who do well with us and then don't carry those skills over. So Mm -hmm. there is a very specific um, plan in place for what that's going to look like for our kids. Having said that, the district has so many great alternative programs for older students if a student needs to continue with that level of support. Gotcha. Our hope is, though, is that we're getting them so young, this is used as a short-term intervention so that kids can then be successful in a more traditional setting. Dr. Pond, what else can we do to help? I was just thinking, um, also kind of a long-term vision for the program for our students is, you know, providing um, mentorship amongst, uh, between, I should say, the RISE staff and the families and the kids for the long-term, even after they sort of graduate from RISE and move Mm -hmm. back to homeschools and other programs. And I would also say, I think the long-term vision, too, is that the strategies employed at RISE um, the different pieces, that components that are a part of RISE, 
eventually start to sort of infuse into our traditional school settings as well so that maybe in the long run we don't even have to have kind of this alternative it just becomes the, yeah. the thing it's the yes. thing yeah how, how amazing would that yeah, be? that would be pretty amazing so yeah. uh for families that are listening or maybe somebody knows another family that might need the help uh what do we what do we do how do we contact you folks Sure. So we would actually recommend that they talk to their homeschool administrator. Okay. They have all Principal, the tools that they need then to reach out to us, complete that referral form, um, and then we would take steps from Does it there. cost anything? Not for doesn't, the families. doesn't cost anything oh. to the families. Okay. Do you need funding? I mean, is, how, how do we fund this? No, we do not need funding. So it's not like we can donate to help support Rise Academy. Right. That's, not a, that's yeah. not a mechanism. Correct. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.